Hey guys, I wanted to take a couple minutes to talk with you about what's going on in the world right now. I wasn't sure whether to even release an episode this week. Uh, I decided to for you know reasons I'll get into a little later. But either way, it just didn't feel right not to acknowledge the historical moment that we find ourselves in here in America and how to move forward. You know, and as a white man, I think lots of people will say that I shouldn't be speaking about this issue at all. You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I haven't lived the experiences of a black man or a black woman in America, which is all true. But at the same time, I do recognize that I have something of a very small platform here with the podcast. And with that responsibility, I need to reflect on what's going on in the world and, you know, share my thoughts and um, you know, my ideas here. And it's, it's beyond sick and sad and unacceptable that here in 2020, that the message has to be put out there that black lives matter. And you know, nothing that has happened in the past week should come as a surprise when you consider the context of the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. The murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department was just the most recent in a long line of consistent police brutality against people of color. The killing of Eric Gardner in Staten Island in 2014, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Jamar Clark in Minneapolis, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Stephen Clark in Sacramento, Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Anyone who can watch these videos and read these stories and witness firsthand what has transpired and still vehemently deny that we have an extraordinary problem of racism in American society is just egregiously ignorant and in denial. Okay, our entire country's history is mired in racism, going all the way back to the institution of slavery, which actually was only eradicated 150 or so years ago. It's actually not that long, you guys. And I think that, forgive me for being reflective for a moment, but if we go back and we look at Reconstruction and then later the Civil Rights Era and the movements of Dr. King and recently the you know treatment of people of color by police forces around the country, you know we like to think that we've come a long way since slavery, that we've evolved as a society, that we've grown, that we've moved past it, that black people now have equal footing with other races in 2020. But a lot of us still have hate in our hearts for anyone who is different than we are. And that doesn't just go for police. I think that the reason why the focus is on policing so much is that's just a manifestation of a larger systematic problem in society. It's not just police who are racist. You know, I think there are so many people who have hate for others just for being born differently. Even though these people couldn't help being born black any more than I could help being born white or being born Jewish. And as a Jewish person, it reminds me of the quote from the pastor Martin Niemöller, 
from after World War II. They came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. To those of you listening who are not black, much like me, I'm going to say again, we will never understand what it's like to live in a black man or a black woman's body. But we need to speak up. You know, we are at a crossroads in our history. The nation, you know, we're seeing protests and demonstrations around the nation that we haven't seen since the assassination of Dr. King back in 1968. What kind of person are you? What kind of person do you want to tell your kids? You know, let's say you're, you're listening to this and you're younger. When your children ask, you know, in 2020, how, how did you react? What did you do after the death of George Floyd when the entire country was uniting around Black Lives Matter. We may never know what it's like to live in fear of the police. But that doesn't mean that we can't use our voice to speak out about the injustice. That we can't try to empathize. That we can't try to understand what it's like to worry that every time you leave the house to go jogging, to walk to the corner store, to go to church, to walk home with Skittles, to read a book, to cash a check, that you might be the next in a long line of Eric Gardner's or Michael Brown's or George Floyd's. I am lucky. I'm privileged that I can feel safe when the police arrive during a tense situation, that the police protect me and keep me safe. But like all white people, I need to recognize that I have a privilege as a white person, that I can do that. And that black people don't have that same safety or security. I think that part of the reason why we're seeing all of this now, why, you know, why now? Why is, why isn't 2020? Why this moment? Well, I mean, there's a few factors. I think Obviously, the pandemic and the coronavirus, you know, millions of people are at home. They're unemployed. They're not working. They're restless. They're tense. They're angry. I also think because of social media, because of smartphones and Twitter, you know, this stuff isn't new. Police have been treating black people this way for decades. But it's only now that instead of hearing about this secondhand or thirdhand, you can be sitting on your couch, having dinner, watching a movie, And be presented with a video of a cop with his knee on another man's throat for nine minutes. That you can see that and experience the agony and the fear and the pain and the intensity. And realize, holy shit, we have a problem. I also think the arts, you know, the creative arts are playing a role in bringing these issues to light. I'll never forget back in 2013, I saw the movie Fruitvale Station, which depicted the last 24 hours in the life of Oscar Grant. 
a 22-year-old African-American man who was shot by the police in San Francisco back in 2009. And I think that movie for me really awakened, really, you know, forced me to realize the depth and the potency of the systematic racism in society for the first time. I think that for the Black Lives Matter movement to be successful, you know, we need to to come together. I think regardless of politics, left, right, center, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, communitarian, libertarian, we can all agree, we should all be able to agree that no one deserves to be treated differently because of their skin. Unfortunately, there's a lot of divisive language that that people use. It's so it's you know, it's us versus them. It's all or nothing language. All protesters are violent. All cops are killers. You know, we need to avoid generalizing because the reality is there are plenty of incredibly good cops that put their lives on the line for us every single day. And there are some awful, despicable cops like some of the ones that we've seen. Just like there are incredible people and there are people who, who act inhumanely. You know, the police force is just a subsection, a gradation of the greater society. So, you know, I was taught, I remember I was taught in like first grade that we had to accept people for who they are, right? Like the golden rule, treat people for how you want to be treated. We were taught not to be racist or sexist or bigoted. But I think something that we have to acknowledge is that all of us have biases. All of us have stereotypes, unconscious, implicit biases and stereotypes and learned associations that are the product of our lived experiences. There's so much research and literature and scholarship out there um, on implicit biases. I, I encourage you, you know, to read up about it and to you know, take the implicit association test and see, you know, see for yourself if you don't believe me. These biases are not our fault. They're based on how we grew up and how our parents raised us. But we need to understand that they exist and talk about how to unlearn them. Because it's one thing to say that Black Lives Matter and even to internalize that Black Lives Matter. But what can we actually do to change things? To change a criminal justice system that is mired with racism? To change a society where almost all people have these implicit biases. I do not have all the answers. I, maybe I don't have any answers. But I do think that having conversations like this, if you're a parent speaking to your child about racism and injustice in society, if you're an educator speaking to your students, now don't shame people for their ignorance or their biases. Don't put people down for asking questions. I firmly believe that if you want others to have an open mind, you need to have an open mind yourself. If you have a platform, use it to direct people to places that they can get more information, to resources where they can learn. It's one thing to post a black cube on Instagram, you know, Black Lives Matter. Like, you know, that's fine. That's essentially performative activism. But you need to do more. You need to use your voice to effectuate change. And I think on this notion of performative activism, I do want to keep this conversation positive, but you are seeing brands 
you know, issue these empty statements. We at brand X are committed to fighting injustice, yada, 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 zero specifics, no action plan for these companies and these leaders with not just a public platform, but tens of millions of dollars in resources. They have to do better. They just do. And the other thing I think you can do is, you know, make your voice heard. And there's no one size fits all approach. For some people, that means participating in peaceful protests. You know, others can't do that because we're in a pandemic. You know, people have, uh, are immunocompromised or, you know, maybe they have other commitments, other, you know, safety concerns, what have you. And if you do protest, the key word here is peaceful. There is absolutely no justification for resorting to violence, for putting innocent people at risk, for destroying neighborhoods, for committing arson, for, you know, for completely trashing a community. Doing all these things not only detracts from the larger cause of securing justice for black people, but it hurts black business owners whose livelihoods are being destroyed. Let's not excuse violence. Let's not justify it. Let's not participate in it. And then lastly, quite frankly, we need better policies. We need fair and impartial policing. We need implicit bias training in every police department. Police officers need to be held accountable for their actions. Some of this means mobilizing to lobby our state and local leadership for change. Because changes like this happen at the state and local level. Not at, not at the top, not at the federal level. But it also does mean getting out to vote. Voting for the president in November, and also for the House and the Senate and in your state and local elections. And again, I, I want to make clear, as a white man, I will never know what it's like to live as a black man in America. But I want to learn. I want to listen. And I think for all white men and women right now, this is our opportunity just to listen, to let our black friends and family members and coworkers and peers and members of our community feel like they're heard and they're understood, and bring empathy and unity to these conversations. It makes me sad that this movement is, is being co-opted, you know, by people who are opportunistically trying to up their social capital by posing for pictures at protests and posting them on social media, by violent groups like, like Antifa, who use peaceful demonstrations to stir up violence and vandalism and destruction of property. We are at an opportune moment in history, as I said. You know, in 2020 with coronavirus, you know, now with the Black Lives Matter movement and these demonstrations, for a lot of us are coming to terms with the actuality of racism, systematic racism in society. You know, people want to see the system change. And I don't think that this is going away anytime soon. I really think, you know, we've, we've reached a tipping point. So channel that anger. And use it to make change. Raise your voice. Speak up and speak out when you witness injustice. Do the right thing. And remember, you know, when we look back, when your children look back, your grandchildren, and they ask you about this, you want to be proud at saying that you spoke out against racial injustice. That you were a part of the movement for change. And, you know, educate yourself. If, if you want more information, more resources, go to blacklivesmatter.com. We're better than this, you guys. We can be better than this. I really do believe that. So on that note, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Three, two, one. Hit it.
What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, I, I can't with Jesus. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. Hey guys, welcome to Nervous Habits. I've got a great episode in store for all of you where I'm joined by relationship and love coach Marie Winter and we explore issues including how to reframe what you want to get out of dating online, why our attachment to our caretakers is the common thread throughout all of our romantic relationships, how our inner child decides for us what we seek in relationships, why people struggle to reconcile emotionality with sex, and finally, why you should never play games or feign disinterest in the early stages of dating. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey guys, hope everyone is doing fantastic. I am still reeling for my uh, incredible sit-down with Harry Mack last week. Um, really appreciate your your feedback. I've actually gotten a great response on the last few episodes in general. You know, the one... On fitness with Eric Degatti, on you know cooking with Chef Plum, and of course the freestyle rap wonder from Venice Beach. Uh, that was truly uh, you know just an amazing experience for me. And um, I mean the podcast has grown so far uh, in the last you know almost two years. You, you can even hear based on the sound quality. When I started out, I had this you know cheap little recording device, and it was picking up all sorts of. Um, you know, outside noise, and now that you know, sound quality's gotten considerably better. Upgraded actually recently to a new mic here. Um, so you know, really, really happy with how everything's going, and you know, continue to to let me know your feedback if you have any comments, questions. Um, you know, if if you like the show, if you don't like the show, feel free to let me know. Um, I mean, I keep plugging the Gmail. I, I feel like. At this point, I don't get too many emails from fans. Most of it comes through Instagram and Twitter. But email me, NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. On Instagram at NervousHabitsPodcast. On Twitter at NervousHabits underscore. Um, and yeah, if you don't mind you know, writing me a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, it's much appreciated. Uh, you know, Ratings, reviews are everything for podcasts these days. Um, and you know, if you don't have time to write a long review, that's totally fine. Just, you know, just if you have a minute, you, know, you want to give me a rating out of five, uh, would would be really awesome. Would mean a lot to me. So I am very excited for this episode in particular on relationships. It's something that I've discussed a lot on the pod. Really going back to the third episode I did on modern dating and option, you know, the option overload that we have with dating apps and dating platforms. Um, you know, I talked about meeting people in public, conversa- conversation starters, the, the do's and don'ts of you know being on a first date. Um, I was back in episode 11, of course, with uh, my guest Ian Crowther on episode 15. We talked about love languages and our relationship survival guide. Even recently on the law school episode, episode 28, we touched on the commercial side of love in the spirit of Valentine's Day. And to be honest, I could talk about dating and relationships all day long. I think that there is an undertone of love and certainly of sex in a lot of what we do. Um, And, you know, I don't mean to get too Freudian with you. We actually haven't really discussed uh, sex on the podcast very much. I I don't think that uh, Marie and I are going to get into that. Um, Really, our conversation is going to be more geared towards, uh, you know, conflict in relationships, attachment, um, you know, loss of attraction, things like that. Um, 
maybe in a future episode we can delve into the, the importance of uh, sex in relationships. But you know, there it is a, a vast um, terrain, and there's lots of areas that even though I've devoted time to talking about this on the podcast before, I still haven't gotten to. Like I just mentioned, attachment. That's something that um, you know is one of my personal favorite topics in social psychology and, and have never mentioned, uh, you know, our attachment styles and how they play into compatibility and how they develop and how they, you know, affect who we're attracted to and who's attracted to us. So I'm, I'm excited for that aspect of the conversation as well. Unlike me though, my guest does this for a living. You know, I'm, I'm sort of an armchair relationship expert, but Marie Winter, she's a certified relationship and love coach who holds degrees in sex, love, and relationship coaching, as well as social work and holistic therapy. Really delighted that, you know, she's able to join me for this conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with Marie Winter. Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to to have you here. As I, I sort of you know mentioned to my listeners a few moments ago, dating and relationships is something that I've talked a lot about on Nervous Habits. And obviously, you're being you know a, a sex, love, and relationship coach. I thought it'd be it'd be you know sort of uh, very fitting to have you come on the podcast and talk to me about attachment and you know conflict in relationships. Yes, 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 yes. I love that. Um, so let me sort of present to you the dating landscape in 2020. I like to say that dating today, Marie, is all about two words, option overload. And my listeners will, of course, remember that I talked a while back about the problem of too much choice with dating apps and platforms and the transactional nature of these modes of connecting with people. So I got to ask, Marie, how do you think you would fare dating in 2020? Wow, that's such a good question. I think, I mean, I think it's really right. Like there are so many options. And what I fall back on if there are too many options is really um, trying to keep it small and just following, you know, following where my body feels a yes. And I think that that's a big, big part of, of dating in these days there are so many options and our mind can get crazy around uh what the best strategy is and all the platforms and all the messages and and all of that and to really stay in touch with our bodies as a gauging of where it makes sense for you to be because otherwise it's just you can't you cannot manage you cannot keep up if you have to think about the best strategy or plan it out what do you mean? What do you mean by by in touch with your bodies? Because a lot of these interactions are virtual, so you're not necessarily sitting with someone face to face when you're first getting to know them. Yeah. So what I what I mean with being in touch with my body is is the really the feeling in my body when I can even when it's a virtual message, you very often do have a feeling. Like you have a feeling in your gut. Uh, at least many of us do. And a feeling of excitement to respond or a feeling of a little bit of pressure or a feeling of a little bit of a meh. And to really trust those feelings, trust that there is intelligence in those kinds of reactions rather than just what you think should be the right reaction. And another thing to that I feel is very important, like there is this sort of idea in a lot of dating areas and a lot of dating scenery of like, you sort of have to be a certain, you have to present a certain story, like you have to present your success story to the dating scene and then find a partner based on that. Whereas my philosophy really is um, give, you know, give as much of the real you 
as you can, like don't hold back. Like very often there's this advice of like, well, don't go speak about what you really long for in relationship on your first date. And mm -hmm. I think, well, do like do speak of what you really long for on your first date because you find out if it matches or not, like only sooner, like it's better to find it out sooner down the process than being like 10 days in and realizing, oh, this is not a good match. So be as real and vulnerable uh, and open as you can, especially early on, I think is, is really, really important. That's incredibly well said, Marie. I think the problem is, at, to your point, people are trying to curate the best possible version of themselves on these dating apps and platforms, um, trying to you know, conceal their flaws and present themselves in the best light. But as you're saying, sooner or later, if you have a nagging insecurity, if you have significant baggage that might be a, a deal breaker for someone, they're going to find out. And you want to make sure that you're not you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, I know it's it's overused. You're not wasting your time with someone that you're not a good match for. Totally, totally. Um, and this is particularly relevant, Marie, now with, with, you know, with the COVID pandemic, people aren't, don't have the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face, and they're building these relationships completely, you know, online. I'm sure platforms like Tinder, Hinge, Match.com are thriving. So what sort of recommendations do you have for folks who are using dating platforms right now during the quarantine and are looking to, to connect with other people, but without having the opportunity to meet them face to face? Yeah, this is a very unique time. Absolutely. Um, I've heard of many people being, being on those platforms right now and having Zoom dates. Right, like where where generally we would go out for a walk or a coffee. Now people are having Zoom dates. Yeah. Um, I feel that e like maybe even more like being being so honest upfront in your writing in in you know how you show yourself and what you really really long for. And I feel like yes, there's one part personality like this is who I am and this is who I really am or at least as far as I know, right? And then there's also the part of desire, like this is why I want a relationship and what I'm what I'm really looking for, not what sounds good um, of what I should be looking for, but what am I really looking for? And having that clear for yourself so it can also be clear on your Zoom date, I think is super, super essential. And then there, yeah, there's something that couples are really, or like daters are really <laughs> finding out, figuring out as we speak is how do we build connection and trust if we cannot be physically together? Mm -hmm. um, and it seems that for some people, at least it's actually uh, helping and it's actually allowing them a sort of almost like a, like an extra layer of safety of like, oh, there's a screen in between us and it almost allows for more openness. At least that's what I've been hearing from clients and from people that I know that are experimenting with this, um, that some of it is, is quite, can be quite positive of having this, also the safety of being in your own environment. Um, and the, just the single focus attention on that person that's with you on the call, that there are beautiful things happening there. And of course, it will be a whole different or a whole new exploration, like what happens when the quarantine is over and we mm. get to physically meet? Because a part of our attraction, a big part of our attraction, but well, at least a part of our attraction is also our pheromones, is also, you know, how our bodies, even without us consciously knowing, um, find attraction towards each other. 
Yeah, I want to. So, so, so I'm going to go back to the pheromones in, in, in a minute because I because I, I do want to hear your take on that. But just real quick, um, in response to what you said about the quarantine making or breaking relationships, I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, I have a friend and she's in a long term relationship. And, she, and she, at this point, she's saying that now she having been quarantined with her boyfriend for, you know, months, uh, she's discovering that they actually might, you know, be really compatible in a long-term partnership. And now she's thinking about maybe getting engaged. Of course wow. you have, and of course you have couples, Marie, who are at each other's throats, who maybe, maybe they saw each other once a week for, you know, six, nine months. And now they're stuck together and they're realizing, wow, I can't live with this person. So I think it does go, um, you know, it, it does sort of cut both ways. Yes, absolutely. I've been seeing this very much. Those, those two extremes that you're, that you're describing here. Either couples are going through immense breakthroughs or they're on their way to breaking up. And um, this is this is definitely an intense time, like both ways. It's an it's an intense time for couples. And um, it's so like most of us have never experienced being together 24 seven and that a part of it is challenging. Like that's also normal. Like it it is normal because there is there is a big change slash crisis in the world and that that transfers onto your own stress levels and therefore in your relationship like that's a part that i really want to normalize and not not tell couples like if you're experiencing a lot of stress together right now you're necessarily doomed to break up or not meant to be together like part of it is really really normal in these times and it is really an invitation to get super clear on okay how is our communication what do we have the tools that we need to create communication that is effective and connected? Do we have the tools and practices that we need to find deep connection? How do we negotiate space and closeness? Like that's a big topic right now. Mm -hmm. Can we have we time and me time while being in the same, you know, on the same uh, in the same house all the time? Mm. So there are some structural things, I think, that every couple right now has to deal with. And then there are also couples that realize that actually they don't they don't find each other anymore. Maybe they have been living quite separate lives for many, many years. And now being so much together, they realize, huh, our shared ground kind of is not here anymore. And then there's very much a choice. Like, do we want to both lean in again? Do we want to make a new commitment here and go for it? Or is it time for us to realize that actually our paths are pretty much different now? And we were just sharing the same. We were still cohabitating, but we weren't actually in partnership anymore. Right, right. We were we were more roommates than than, you know, people in a relationship. And exactly. a few a few minutes ago, you, you know, you talked about Zoom dates and how for people who haven't met yet, this is a good opportunity to communicate. The difficulty though, um that I would posit is I'm not sure if you've personally, you know, uh, interfaced with these dating platforms or if your clients have, but you know, you're investing a lot of time every single day, even before, before COVID Marie, you know, let's say six months ago, you meet someone on Tinder or on hinge and you spend, you know, a week or two talking to them. And then you meet up and more often than not, it fizzles out because of all the factors that we're talking about with, you know, attachment and with compatibility. So now what, okay. now what, now what you're having to do Marie is you're having to talk to someone on Zoom for maybe two months, maybe the entire length of quarantine, only to meet up with them and realize, you know, I don't actually find this person attractive. So is it worth, you know, to people listening, is it worth that 
you know, taking that risk? Um, that's a really good question. I would say it's worth it if if you can take it as your own personal research, no matter of the outcome. Like if it is an exciting experiment to you to get to know someone, to uh, experiment with how you share yourself, to experiment with, you know, whatever shows up inside in terms of insecurities or, or whatever. If that is an interesting personal growth experiment for you, I would say, yes, of course, you know, do it. If it's something that just feels awful to every cell in your body, <laughs> then I would definitely not do it and, and wait and trust that there will be times again in which we can meet up live. I, I, to be honest, like it's a lot of work to have to, especially for, for women out there who have to filter through hundreds of matches on some of these apps, you know, to have to, to decide, be like a gatekeeper. Okay, this guy checks this box. You know, this guy's attractive enough. This guy is well-educated. Maybe I want to invest 30 minutes, but it ends up being almost like a secondary job. So I think it's important to your point here to not look at it as work and not be fo focused on the X intrinsic the outcome but really to see it as a learning experience and you know look almost like like research and figuring out you know who are you what do you want and you know what are, what are your relationship goals personally exactly and then like for me the question would be like is this uh practice of being on all these messages responding to all of it filtering it out is this something that allows me to know myself deeper is it something that allows me to love myself more um, is it something that allows me to, you know, open up to new possibilities in myself? Yeah, then it's probably worth my time. But even then, it shouldn't need to be a stressful, uh, a stressful endeavor. I yeah. really, I really feel it, it. Like there, there is something about when our bodies are in stress, we also are sometimes not open to like the biggest, the biggest potential of life because we are in sort of a survival mode. Um, so it, like whatever you do, however, you know, whatever you do on these platforms, I would, I always, I have a couple clients being on those platforms and I definitely always encourage them to make sure that they're doing it from a place of being in their heart, being resourced, being, you know, energized um, and doing it out of joy. I think I think that that's that's crucial. I mean, people that listen to the podcast know that I am not the biggest proponent of dating apps. I'm, you know, obviously someone who thinks that the best connections, the strongest connections are forged in person. You know, I'm old. I'm traditional in that sense. And you mentioned a little bit ago that when you do meet someone in person, pheromones come into play. So how would you explain to listeners what pheromones are and why they're important to sussing out, you know, if two people are compatible? Oh wow, this is a really good question. So I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm, I'm I cannot give you the most scientific answer to this. But how I view this is that pheromones or attraction, I would say, are there are a couple components. There's like the physical components, like something in our cells recognizes that there is a compatible human being in front of us that uh, has compatible genes to us. Like I think that's the most biologic. Um, explanation of it but then there's also a part um, in our brain like the the primal our primal brain like our deepest um, oldest part of our brain has memories and associations of what is familiar and what is safe and that very much has to do with um, our caretakers 
and if and our primal brain works by association so if something in the person in front of me triggers that part of my brain to associate it with safe or belonging whether or not our caretakers were safe uh, for us, they they were because they were our caretakers. So if my brain uh, recognizes that, there's very likely a pull towards wanting to be with this person. Mm, that almost sounds Freudian, like wanting to men wanting to marry their mothers, and um, uh, you know the Oedipus complex and then the Electra complex, women wanting to marry their their fathers. Is there any uh, any basis to that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it it does. I don't I don't know uh, how Freud worked with like how he actually researched the brain, or if it was more his conclusion of, around like working with many people and seeing this. Um, how I've studied it, it comes more from a, a neuroscientific point of view that says that in the relationship with our caretakers. Um, we've had certain stress cycles, so our nervous system had been activated, and those not all of those stress cycles have been completed, meaning that we needed certain things that our caretakers could not give us. They could mm. not meet us in all of our needs. That realization is often too much for a baby's nervous system. So it sort of shuts off at that moment. If a need is not being fulfilled in the moment because it doesn't have perspective, a young one doesn't have time perspective and cannot think, well, the milk is not here now, but it will be here in an hour. The milk not being here now can be an overwhelming threat to the nervous system. So right. at that point, it shuts off and it doesn't know how to complete that stress cycle. And if you ha like an example of completing a stress cycle is, you know, animals when they um, have a stressful situation like deer, when they are being attacked, but not being caught by a lion, they go in the bushes and they go shake. They shake, they shake their bodies and that completes their stress cycle that releases their adrenaline. But if we freeze in that moment of threats, the stress cycle is never being completed. And somewhere our brain is always trying to find the situation again in which finally that need can be met and the stress cycle can be completed. So when, when it associates the person in front of us with that caretaker, something is like, oh, maybe it's like this, this very primal hope or maybe this person has it. Mm, interesting. So this stress cycle talk, just to me, it sounds like you're talking about the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which happens, you know, when you have that cortisol response and, and, and the fight or flight, you know, the adrenaline, and then you need to kind of balance that with the parasympathetic response where you get that relief and that subsequent relaxation. Is that along the lines of what you're talking about or is yeah. it it's, okay. And really the, the guiding, you know, undertone on, on everything you're saying, Marie, is this notion of attachment about how our relationship with our caretakers is the thread that, you know, um, stays with us throughout all of our lives. So what, you know, what can you tell listeners about attachment theory and how someone's attachment style is actually formed? Yeah, yeah, that's very much in line of, of what we were talking about. Um, that that primal connection with our caretaker and how they could or could not fulfill our needs. And really, even the best caretakers will not be able to fulfill every need. So it's not 
through a fault or through definitely you know, necessarily being not a good caretaker. But at some point, our needs are not being fulfil- fulfilled or we're not being met in the ways that we longed for. Sometimes um, there was not enough presence. Sometimes there was too much presence of the caretaker or presence at the moment that we didn't really want it as a young one. There's There has been... For every one of us, there has been moments of misattunement of the caretaker with our needs and our longings. And that forms how, uh, one, how safe do we feel in human contact? And when we are stressed, what is the reaction that we have? Like those two things are, are coming from very, very early childhood. If we had caretakers that mostly could take care of our needs and do it in ways that were good for us, Um, it's more likely that we build um, at least a form of secure attachment of feeling safe in human relationships, feeling that there's a base level of I trust another human being. If those needs or any of our needs were not met at all or there were abusive situations, like obviously we're not building a basic trust in human beings. And that has a very big impact on our future relationships. And attachment is a scale. So it's not you're either secure or insecurely attached. You're somewhere on the scale of securely attached uh, behavior. And um, when when your stress levels go up, you will default towards the pattern that you've developed in childhood, which is either you will start avoiding you will start withdrawing or you will start needing more closeness and asking for more so you can imagine like this this very basic example of you being hungry and not getting fed immediately some of us at some point were so hungry and decided you know what i'm not going to get it anyways let me just withdraw my desire here i just withdraw all my desire and i just numb out a little bit some of us just kept on asking, kept on crying, kept on begging for it. And, and that's that's the push-pull, like a tug of war. Exactly. The, pu- the push and the pull of anxious and avoiding attachment. Exactly, exactly. And based, and we both, like we all have these, all these patterns somehow like inherent in us, um, but we definitely have preferences and defaults. And based on the partner that we're with, like like those avoidant and um, uh, ambiguous or anxious attachment styles, they amplify each other because it's it's both coming from a level of stress. So if we have a partner who's highly avoidant, they bring in quite quite a bit of stress, and we will probably respond with being highly uh, insecure. Or anxious. Right. It's amazing. Like listening to you talk about these examples from childhood, like, you know, you're hungry as a baby, you're not being fed. How do you react? You can, you know, you can really see in adulthood how this would impact relationships. If, uh, you know, let's say it's your girlfriend's birthday and you didn't get her what she wanted. She, you know, uh, she might withdraw and be have sort of an avoidant reaction. And the guy might respond to that uh, by being anxious and, and you know, the, the, the term is codependent by needing the validation and needing, you know, reassurance that she's not upset and that everything's OK. And you can see why, Marie, people with anxious attachment and avoidant attachment really bring out the worst in each other. Yeah. 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 
Absolutely. And, and I want to add to that, like, and we will always, almost always attract a partner who will bring out the worst in us. Yeah. Um, Cause that's, that's part of the attraction and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like this is where if we become aware of it, um, it becomes such a tremendous opportunity for growth and healing. And that's, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm sure so many of the listeners are, are listening to this and they're nodding their heads emphatically and they're saying, wait a second, that sounds like my relationship. And nowadays, I think that these so-called toxic relationships are so common because people don't recognize their attachment styles. And as you're saying, people seek out, maybe it's unconscious or subconscious, um, seeking out what they think they need when really they're reinforcing old habits. It's, I think it's called the repetition compulsion theory. It's Freudian that we, you know, repeat the past to heal our pain. And so if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, my ex-girlfriend and I, all we did was, was fight. My ex-boyfriend never fulfilled my needs. He never met my needs. It seems like the root of this is an inability to understand and to acknowledge what the other person's attachment style is either overtly or subtly on, on some level. Exactly, exactly. And I would say like, if there is a willingness from both partners to do that work, um, every relationship has a potential to be a healthy relationship. Um, and you're very, very true with this repetition compulsion. Like that's why it's important to, to be very clear when you're dating, like, what is it that I really long for in a partner? What is it that, what is the kind of relationship or connection that I want? What are my, what are my values in that? Cause you might fall in love, like on a brain level, you might fall in love, not necessarily with the best match, but just because it feels familiar to you. That's that's I mean incredible. Uh, it's it's all about familiarity. And and you said it earlier when you were talking about how it's about our bodies and it's about our cellular desires. At the end of the day, I don't think Marie people are good judges of what they want. I think that if you ask someone right now, if you're listening, take a piece of paper and write out your perfect guy. Write out you know the qualities in your perfect girl, and then you look at the the people that they dated. I'm sure you have friends and clients who always say, Oh, I, I date jerks. I go for jerks. You know, I'd rather date a nice guy, a nice girl, what have you, but that's not the people that they're attracted to. So, so why do you see this sort of divide where people are just either unaware of what they want or they're unwilling to actually pursue what they think they want? There is very often, um, when this is the case and when there is an awareness of, yeah, I do, I do attract where it is familiar, but still I continue to attract like the assholes or, or, you know, however you want to call it. Um, I think there is very often a, a, a deep fear that maybe I'm not worthy of what I really long for. Maybe that's not for me. Um, and there is, there is often like not a big ground of self love as a foundation from where to date. And that's something that I always want to work on with people is, is okay, this is what you desire. And do you feel that you're actually worthy of, worthy of having that? Do you see yourself having that? And what are the parts in you that actually don't see that? And those parts don't need to, like, they don't need to go away. They don't need to be fixed, but they do need to be acknowledged and find integration inside because those parts are, you know, our wounded, I, I call them inner children, like our wounded inner children that 
feel like we're not worthy of love. We're not worthy of that deep trust. We're not worthy of someone adoring us. And yeah. if those inner children start, like, they're very welcome, but they shouldn't rule the show. Like, they shouldn't, <laughs> they shouldn't decide who I do and do not date. Absolutely. I love I love that your definition of self-love to me makes sense. It's just thinking that you're worthy of having someone love you. A lot of people, a lot of so-called experts, when they define self-love, they say it's, oh, like, you know, uh, it, be, being able to, like, look in the mirror and love yourself. It's, it's, it's abstract. It's not really like a concrete thing. But your definition is is simple. It's self-love is is just thinking that, that you deserve love. I think that, that that makes sense. That's practical. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I do want to say another word on attachment here. So for me, attachment is something that I've studied and been interested in for a long time, ever since you know I, I you know took uh, major in psychology undergrad. And I think that if you track your attach uh, your attachment in childhood and adulthood, it's impossible not to reconcile the symmetry for most people. Not to see if you take a minute and you think about your relationship with your mother or father, and you think about like Marie's saying how you react to stress and conflict. It's very difficult not to see the symmetries between childhood and adulthood. So. For people listening out there who maybe have a pattern of insecure attachments, may, either for, for a lot of men that are avoidant, that shut down with intimacy, or women who get codependent and clingy, so to speak, who have these insecure attachment styles, what do you recommend they can do to either find a secure partner or to remedy their own attachment? Yeah, beautiful question. Um, a lot depends on if, like, do the partners want to do the work together? Because if yes, that's that's such a profound opportunity and that's such a blessing if that's the case. In that case, you can investigate together, okay, what are the needs that uh, we are lacking? Like, what are what are my deeply unfulfilled needs? Like for this woman that you were describing, like it might be a need for closeness and for attention and for validation. And for another person, it might be a need for space, for being allowed to be my own person, for being free in the world. Like what are those needs underneath our behavior and our, and our reactions? the needs that were never fulfilled. And if we start to understand our own needs, but also our partner's needs, we can, in a way, like make a plan, like, okay, how can we meet those needs? But now it's not underneath the service anymore. So it's not like me, like hoping that my partner will do something for me or meet my need, but never quite expressing it. So always being slightly resentful or slightly angry that he hasn't figured it out yet. So I'll, if I have conscious what my unmet need is, I can say, hey, I have this deeply unfulfilled need for validation and for feeling yep. welcome. And if you are on your phone when I enter the space and you don't even look up, this I'm sort of flooded with the stress of not having that need met. So I get super, super angry and I withdraw and I walk out of the door. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of people can can relate to to that experience. And is it true? So my my sister, um, you know, she's listening to this, and uh, as an aspiring clinical psychologist, her like main um, area of interest, Marie, is, is attachment. And she always says to me, she says, Ricky, if there's one secure person in a relationship, the relationship can work. Meaning, 
let's say someone is insecurely attached, either avoidant or anxious, but they do find a partner who's secure. Um, this this one secure bond can essentially anchor the entire relationship. Have you found that to be the case, that only one person has to be secure? I think it definitely helps. It definitely, definitely helps because it will help like levitate or gravitate the whole relationships towards secure functioning. And I also think that both partners with the willingness and, and with the openness to doing this work can together um, gravitate their relationship towards more security. Absolutely. That I think that makes perfect sense. Um, so we've spoken a lot about how one of the keys to, to, you know, being in a healthy relationship is understanding your partner's needs and being able to put in the work, being willing to put into, in the work to, you know, recognize those and meet those. So in terms of, you know, relationship longevity, if you had to, had to name one other factor that you think separates relationships that, that go on for lots of success, you know, uh, marriage, families, and relationships that end, what, what factor is that besides obviously, you know, meeting the other person's needs generally? A big factor that at some point drives relationships apart, I feel, is a seeming or, yeah, loss of attraction. Um, sexuality not being present anymore, intimacy not being present anymore, and not knowing how to get back into that intimate space together as a source of deep nourishment. So is that is that something that you found every couple experiences, a loss of, of attraction and intimacy at some point? I would say, not well, maybe like 95% of the couples. Yeah. Um, but if you, like... If you have sexuality really as a conscious practice and, and you, you talk about it and you find ways to renew and reinvent yourselves continuously, like if that's already part of how you are with sexuality, there's a good chance that that will just continue down the road. But if sexuality was sort of riding the wave of attraction and then fizzling out but never having quite a conversation about it, um, then it's very, very likely it will not like magically re, re, uh, re-arise. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think most most couples, and, and I'm sure your clients have had this experience, but most couples in the beginning when they have that, um, you know, that, that hormone-induced uh, in, phase of, they call it the honeymoon period of a couple months, it's like you can't get enough of the other person. Then a year, two years goes by, you, you know, most people enter this complacency and the attraction is a lot of times dead. So, I mean, if you're if 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 you're in that situation, I, I feel like this is a question that that everyone has has asked and answered at some point. But if you're in a situation where you're bored or disillusioned, and and you you know have that light has gone out in your relationship, what can you do to to you know revitalize it? Yeah, I feel like there are a couple of things to that. Like one is don't problematize it. Like really see it like okay, this is. This is normal. It is okay. Um, you know, let's take this as an experiment. And then there are a couple of factors. Like one is um, our attachment and and our patterns and the way that we relate and maybe don't resolve every conflict. Like those things often transfer into the bedroom. So you know, if we had a stressful day and then we had a little argument and it wasn't quite resolved, it's very unlikely we're gonna feel sexy together when we are in bed. So there is one thing about um, creating an agreement or creating practices in which sexuality can be its own thing again mm. and can be like like who, not just what you do, but 
who are you being Esther Perel actually talks about this very beautifully like who are you being when you are having sex it's not really about what you do but both partners like getting back back in touch with who do I long to be and can we create spaces together can we create date nights together that are just dedicated to our intimacy that we really really commit to leaving you know our stress our family our work leaving that at the door for a moment and enter this space of mystery and unknown because that was so attractive in the beginning it was you know it was this space of mystery and not knowing each other and figuring out every moment every movement what was gonna happen it was all unknown and somehow mm. we have to recreate that yeah i mean i think i think that's you hit the nail on the head i think that that sense of familiarity which might draw you to a person at first becomes stale and and uh you know mundane over time and people obviously crave variety that's why if you eat the same thing for lunch every day i, I don't know about you i have i have the same turkey sandwich after a week or two i'm you know i'm craving roast beef i'm craving tuna i want <laughs> i want something i want something different um and i do think you know as you're saying you need to uh, sort of, you know, put in put in effort to to make sure that it's not, you know, you're not entering that phase. And also on that note, I think one of the problems with society, and th I mean, this could be a whole other problem with how we view sex, but a lot of people nowadays with with you know the the hookup culture, and we talked about Tinder and dating apps. People don't look at sex as being important to fortify an emotional connection, Marie. A lot of men particularly, but of course women as well, disassociate sex from emotionality. So they look at sex as this, you know, as this um, almost like an extracurricular recreational activity. So then when they enter a relationship, they can't feel emotionality during sex. So is that is that something you see? And, and you know, what could someone do in that situation? Absolutely. There is so much, exactly as you're describing, so much conditioning about what sex is and what sex is not. Um, and if that is all that we learned, um, and also there's a big, a big idea around what is, you know, what's the goal of sexuality? It, it is pleasure. It is having an orgasm maybe. And then it's over. Like that's sort of our, even if we grew up with all with, you know, an open liberated view on sexuality in our, in our collective culture, that's very much the story. Like sex is an act that you do and it looks kind of like this and it sounds kind of like this. And like you say, like, it's not necessarily an intimate thing. It's not necessarily a connective practice. Um, and for that, I mean, if there is the desire to experience more there, I think the first thing to do is really try to let go of that goal, like really come back. And this is such a big practice. And I mean, I, I like, I write and, and do actual practices step by step with couples to, um, over and over again, recognize the thoughts and the patterns and the habits that our bodies have picked up and through breath, uh, through intention, through communication, coming back to the present moment again, letting go of the goal and finding the connection in the present moment. Thank God there are, you know, for couples who want that, there are uh, practices and tools to start cultivating a, a sexuality and an intimacy that really comes from connection, that really comes from um, you know, what is present in this moment and right. that allows for our creativity to be there. 
And 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 it's interesting. Uh, going along with what you're saying, you talk about how sex is aimed to achieve a certain end. It's it's very forward looking. And if you look at how like sex is depicted on television or in movies, you know they'll they'll show like the last ten seconds, and then obviously you know the the, the man um you know reaches orgasm, and then that's that's it. So I think it's it's very much reinforced by the media. Uh, I I want to pivot now to talk about whether relationships actually need to have futures or end goals to be sustained. Um, I just think about that relate that. Um, I think of that one episode of black mirror. Have you seen the one I'm thinking of on relationships with expiration dates? No. I, do you watch black mirror? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm well, going to should... look it up though. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So black mirror is, is actually an incredible show. It's on Netflix. It's all about, um, different futuristic, uh, technologies and how they, um, interact with, with our lives. And so in this one society, Marie, let me paint you a picture. It's a society where everyone carries around this circular tablet, which pairs you up with people for various amounts of time, ranging from hours to years. So you meet someone for a date, you both look at the tablet and it tells you how long the encounter should last. Maybe it's two hours, maybe it's four years. And you're sort of, you're forced to obey this tablet because the system promises to match you with your ultimate compatible other on, you know, this pairing day, which it claims has a 99.8% success rate. And ultimately, I don't want to spoil it, but you can imagine a system like that has complications when it comes to free will. Like, what if you meet someone you want to be with for, you know, ever, but the system says they're not your match and, you know, it's it's only a, a two or three hour hookup. Um, so uh, there was a little bit of a detour, but to get back to my question, does every relationship need to have this future, you know, light at the end of the tunnel or end goal or, you know, is a relationship with an expiration date, you know, can, can those relationships uh, relationships be healthy? Wow, this is such a wonderful concept that you just described. Oh, you I, you you have to watch the episode. It's called uh, yeah. "Hang Hang Hang the DJ." Watch it later. Wow. So no, I don't I don't think that every relationship um, should you know last forever. Like absolutely not. And that's a little bit of our sort of fairy tale uh, cultural conception of they got married and lived happily ever after. And and that idea that imprint actually I see causes a lot of suffering for people that break up and then see that as a failure and with seeing that as a failure totally not appreciate anymore like all the good things that happened in that relationship all the learning all the growing and I definitely think that that at some point a relationship can shift forms and there's also something in our, um, at least in our Western society, in most parts of our Western society, where there is kind of like a binary idea, like you're either mm. in romantic relationship or not, which doesn't quite give space for like the zillion ways of intimacy and relationship that we could possibly experience with someone. So many relationships also don't have the space and the context to find their right form. So it's either like you're either married or you're divorced. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's almost like uh, on Facebook, you had that thing, it's complicated. Do you remember that? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's always complicated. And um, I think there is something about acknowledging the fact that at some point you might decide that your path, that your relationship is going to shift. You're going to a relation shift uh, phase. I, I like that, and, relationship. Yeah, your relationship shifting. And that should not be a reason to not be fully in. 
I think that's very important. Like in order to to go through the depth of growth and evolution um, and development that's possible, both individually and together, you have to lean in all the way. Like you have to commit as if it was for the rest of your lives, mm. knowing that it might not be for the rest of your lives. I love what you said um, or, uh, a minute ago about how people look at relationships as a failure if they break up, um, because we do have this idea in society that if you don't get married, if you don't end up with the other person, it's a waste of time. How many, you know, how many people have you spoken to who said, you know, who broke up and it's like, oh, this guy wasn't worth my time. Oh, this guy, you know, this girl, you know, wasted my time. How many people have you heard say, wow, you know, it, I, I really enjoyed the experience. We really, you know, we really grew a lot together. You don't really hear that too much, do you, Marie? Totally. No, the, the, I would say the first reaction almost always is, oh, I can't believe I wasted my time with this person. Mm. And then hopefully over time, when like the hurt or the pain of the breakup fades a little bit, they can have the perspective and they can look back on, you know, how it, how it was good. Um, but very often that also doesn't happen. And that's really, really a shame. I think, I think that it's all having the time to step away from the situation when you're emotionally invested in at the time, you don't have the perspective to step away and, and see the ways that that shaped you and shaped your, 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 you know, your outlook. But then once you are a year or two years removed, you can look back and say, you know what? I'm glad I spent so much time with that person because, you know, she made me a, a, a better, a better, you know, a better friend, a better lover, um, better in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people, it's it's binary. It's either married or not married because of that influence of of assault, of Western culture. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, what you also might have noticed, at least what I've noticed uh, throughout my relationships, is like you you are the same person and evolving, but you still um, encounter similar patterns in yourself, similar attachment styles in yourself, and really seeing. Uh, taking being in relationship as such a profound way to heal some of those patterns and see that in every relationship you do a little step in that like that can be so empowering um and and such a such a heart opening way like thank you partner that you helped me travel down this road for a little while and we could help each other um and acknowledge like okay maybe now our time is uh, not to be continued in this form I, yeah, I think I think that's a great point. Um, overall, though, you know, this this obsession with labels, with defining the relationship, with knowing where you stand when, like you said, it's not like it's it's either or. I do think it's a problem. And I think it's why a lot of people ask for clarity. That That's another magic word that you that you might hear in the dating landscape is I need clarity. I need, you know, I need clarity. And for that reason, you know, I personally don't know if relationships with expiration dates, um, you know, if they're sustainable, just just I, I, I find it hard to believe that there's a situation out there where there will be two people who both know there's an, an expiration date for a romantic relationship and they're both on the same page about it. I mean, I mean, do you find that happens sometimes? Very rarely. I see it start out like that. And very often one partner starts to grow a deeper attachment. Um, and so it, if you decide on that form, I feel like it needs a ton of like regular check-ins, regular evaluations of, okay, are we still on the same page? Are we still on the same page? And really, Ricky, like every relationship needs 
those evaluations because even if we did put on the label of marriage who is to say that we're actually on the same page after a year um and that we're still holding the same vision right. and and that's for me where where commitment comes in but commitment meaning like what's the container like what are we both saying yes to not something you know, some vows that someone else wrote that we then have to repeat. But what am I already saying yes to? What do what do I want to say yes to in terms of growth with you, in terms of how, you know, how we manage our life, in terms of what vision I hold for us? And to have regular recommitment uh, mm. moments, like me and, and my husband have a commitment ceremony at least every year. Um, but when we started having a relationship, it was every three months. Like, okay, for the coming three months, we're going to lean in completely. We're going to take everything that arises between us as growth and and figure it out. We're not going to threaten to leave. And in three months, we're going to see where we are then. What is a, a commitment ceremony? Is that is that like a formal thing or, or more inf informal? It's really what you want it to be. Like, I, for me, it's very informal. Like we take a day off, we go out into nature, we have a conversation sort of evaluating the last year. How was it? How did our relationship do? You know, where was it hard? Where was it good? And then what is our vision for the coming year? What 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 do we desire individually and what do I, do we desire for our relationship to grow into? It almost sounds like uh, if you ever worked in an office, you have like an end of year evaluation. You hand yes. your boyfriend, you hand your boyfriend a form. You're like, all right, here's how you did this year, but uh, you know, try, try to bring up your numbers next year. Yes, it is, but it's such a beautiful way. Like I, I really believe in in being able to reflect on what was and also then consciously setting an intention for how you want it to be, because that's what what will hold you. Like that container is what you fall back on when things are hard. Like when, when things are hard and I did not have an inner knowing of I want to stay with this person even when it gets hard. If I didn't have that inner knowing, I might leave when things get hard. Or For I sure. might think that, it, that it's failing or that I'm failing or he's failing. And that's a nice segue into the conversation I wanted to have with you on conflict and relationships. So John Gottman, um, he posited that there's this thing called a golden ratio that for every five positive interactions um, with your partner, you can only have one negative interaction, five to one. Do you find that that ends up being more or less the case, that five to one ratio? That's a good question. I My answer would be I'm more interested in how you work through the negative interactions because I feel that that sort of determines how you start to associate triggers and conflicts. Like if there, I used to be very conflict avoidant. Like as soon as things got tense, I thought that for sure we were going to break up and I better maybe already leave just in case. Yeah. Um, and I really had to learn and repattern like, oh, when things got tense, we have tools to work through it and it leads to more harmony on the other side. The more that happens and still with every time that we manage to do that, something in me grows in having trust in being able to be with stress or conflict or trigger. Yeah, I, I I think that a lot of people have that attitude of, oh, shit, an argument's coming. I got to either, you know, leave before it gets too intense or I got to go on the offensive. And, you know, it, again, it comes back to the mindset that you're speaking of, of actually not looking at it as a battle of, of me versus them, but as like you're on the same side. Let's work through this conflict together. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, 
And this guy Gottman also talked about like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So he talks about um, this is all in like the pot. I think I read this in, in Blink or something. But this guy, John Gottman, Marie, he looked at uh, couples. He tracked them for, uh, over a period of years through longitudinal studies. And he was able to determine with 90 percent accuracy whether they would uh, divorce or separate based on these four um, like coping mechanisms that he observed. One of them was uh, was criticism which is implying there's something wrong with the other person. Um, one of them was contempt, any statement or nonverbal behavior that puts you on higher ground than your partner. Defensiveness, when you attempt to defend yourself from a perceived attack. Um, and stonewalling, when the listener withdraws. Um, and, you know, he looked at these interactions. He looked at the rolling of the eyes, the sneering in disgust, using words like you always or you never, and he categorized them under one of these four horsemen. And this is how he predicted divorce with 90% accuracy. Uh, that's beautiful. Like I, I definitely, when I hear those four categories, I hear four categories that are um, reactive responses that are deeper than what's going on on the present moment and that come from a place of we're not on the same team anymore and I'm not willing or I'm not able to build a safe and secure space with you here. And that is definitely, um, if, if one or both partners cannot hold a field of safety and security for themselves and each other, then it, it gets really, really complicated. And, you know, one of those statements that you, that you made of like speaking in terms of you always or you never, like to me, those are always signs, always <laughs> signs. <laughs> always, <yeah. laughs> that something else is going on like it's not that's not actually accurate there is a child speaking there there is you know we talked about these wounded children like there is a there is a wounded child saying you never um but that's that's to me is a sign like okay there is a deeply unfulfilled need there is a core wound that's speaking here and that needs to be addressed but if the partner is unwilling to untangle that and sticks with the conviction of no it's my partner who is always la 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 uh, then it becomes super complicated to actually grow into safety and security together absolutely and, and i love these labels too criticism contempt defensiveness or stonewalling because and this is one of the things i like about psychology is you know, if you you can actually code interactions, people say that psychology isn't a science. I mean, you, you probably hear that a lot, right? Yeah. But essentially, like like you 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 could take a scientific perspective. You can you know get one of those two way mirrors or the one way mirrors where you're just watching a couple have a conversation at dinner, and you can start saying, "Up, oh, the husband said you never. You know, that's uh, that's contempt. The the wife." Um, acted like a victim, that's defensiveness. You know, the hu the husband withdrew and shut down, you know, that's stonewalling. And you can actually chart, like numerically, um, you know, take, take a math approach and chart whether or not people will stay together just based on these criteria. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I I think that's very true. Like like the patterns of how we relate, like they're not so unique. Like they're pretty they're pretty universal, and um and you start to recognize them. I would still add though, like okay, if if you witness that interaction and you would gauge like okay, that couple has a high likelihood of not staying together. I would still want to know did like were they aware and was there some sort of repair after that dinner party, for example. Because I feel like those interactions can happen. And in the best relationships, there are moments in which I say always, uh, there are moments in which I withdraw, like all those things happen. But the for me, the key is like, is there awareness? And is there a shared understanding when of both partners? When this happens, we have deeper work to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. And I think another factor here is individual pride, because a lot of times people I would think people are just unwilling to swallow the pill and say, you know what? I, I messed up. This was me. I got to do it's always it's always scapegoating. I, I don't know if that's a category or or victimizing and trying to make the other person the villain when it's a refusal to acknowledge that you need to do the work on yourself. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to add to that, like that, that like when we talked about unworthiness, like there is there is very often like when we start judging the other, there is almost always a deep inner judgment, judgment of myself, which is so unbearable to feel that maybe I'm a horrible person. Maybe I'm not worthy of love. Um, that's so unbearable to feel. So we put it, we project it out and we put it on the other person. So like, even with, you know, especially with people that, that are in big victim patterns that, or that are in big aggressive patterns, like it's not to, to say that this is good in any way, but just to acknowledge, like there's a lot of pain underneath both of those ways of acting and reacting. Definitely. I think that you can, uh, absolutely. I think you can trace a lot of people's reactions. Like we've been speaking about this whole episode, um, to the inner child that's, that's crying out cause they're hungry or, or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're feeling not validated, not loved. They're not getting attention. Um, one of the one of the mindfulness exercises that um, that I use is they say that when you're having an argument with with you know with people try to imagine them as 100 year old seniors or as innocent babies and it'll really help you keep you from vilifying them and and look at them as sort of you know a, a human being with feelings and needs just like you. Absolutely, absolutely. I really love that. And when you are able to do that with your partner in the heat of the moment and you are able to see, oh, but this is what they actually need and give that to them, that's when a very, very deep healing can happen and a very deep repatterning of their wound can happen. For sure, for sure. And do you put any stock that there's an expression that people say, and this is sort of taking a, um, almost like a, uh, like like a Machiavellian view on relationships, but they say some people say that the power in a relationship resides with whoever cares least. Do you do you think that's true? With whoever cares least, I I don't know. I wouldn't say a hundred percent yes to that. I maybe the power because they um they will sort of gravitate the energy towards them in a way. But I would say the most empowered person is the is the person who cares a lot. 
because um, they will find their way back into resource, into self-love, because that's the only way from which you can do relationship work and you can be present with your partner. Does yeah, I, 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 it does. It does. I, I think I think I feel like that quote is more geared towards relationships in the early stages where, you know, let's say you've gone on a bunch of dates. The guy is like super invested and the girl's not necessarily sold on him yet. She, you know, I mean, power is just sort of a, you know, a label here, but she has more um more uh, influence on his feelings than he has on hers because he's more invested. I think that's what that quote is trying to get at. Uh-huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's the case. And that's often where the push and pull in in, uh, in the dating world comes from, like someone uh, being a little bit m more uh, not sure yet and the other person, that making it even more attractive for the other person. And and that that ends up being this this annoying, just unfathomable unfathomable game of you know feigning disinterest that that yeah. we've seen you know when people say playing games in relationships where both sides want to maintain power again power being the operative term here so they do so by pretending like they're not invested and trying to be less invested than the other person and by the end of it you there's this you know this gap this completely unbridgeable gap between two people that they've they've you know faked for so long that it ended up becoming real i feel like that's, that's sort of metaphysical yeah it's awful it's awful and and that's why i really want to say like don't play those games please don't play hard to get don't say i'm only gonna text back after three days because he should wait for it or whatever it's so uh it's it really it leads to the build of a relationship based on a very fake sense of power um whereas uh, where the actual empowerment comes from is from vulnerability is you know i received this text and i actually want to text back immediately and say whoa i'm you know, my heart is racing when I receive your tech and text and it makes me super happy. Like that's empowered. That's the truth. If that's the truth of the moment, if that's my vulnerable reaction, like that's an empowered act to do. I agree with you. I, I think some of it is also fear of vulnerability. And we haven't really talked about vulnerability, Marie, but I think that when you present yourself, you know, in your true unadorned naked form responding right away letting the person know you're not even going to wait because you're so excited you open yourself up to rejection and i think a lot of people are terrified of that absolutely absolutely and it's and it and it's really okay to take care of yourself in that sense really like you don't have to over jump or push yourself now to be vulnerable all the time but but really recognize like yeah if i if I am afraid, I'm very likely afraid of being left alone, of being rejected, because that's like our core, our core fear, our core wound. I always say that vulnerability, being being vulnerable with friends, with family, with loved ones, with romantic partners is high risk and high reward because, yes, there's a chance that you're going to get your heart broken, but there's also a chance that you're going to you know, fall harder than you've ever fallen in your entire life, which obviously is you know, potentially incredibly fruitful. Exactly. Um, and the, the last thing I want to, I want to chat with you about Marie, uh, really quickly is, you know, this idea of, of calling it quits of how to know whether or not a relationship is just not worth the investment anymore. Um, I think that a lot of people listening, you know, given COVID and the quarantine might be at a crossroads in their relationship. So how, do you find that like, it's as simple as a pros and cons or like, like how would someone go about that evaluation? I feel that that it's definitely not as simple as pros and cons. Um, if you were to make pros and cons, you were probably you would be in an in an 
if you were to do that from a completely open, perceptive, non-stressful way, maybe you'll gain some insight there. Um, but I feel that most you know, most couples uh, or most people that say maybe we have to break up are stressed in some way. Like something makes them feel that it doesn't have a future. And maybe that something has repeated over and over and over again. And now suddenly they realize they're fed up with it or they can't continue like that. And what I feel it needs is really uh, one, understanding what is it, what is it that makes me feel we cannot continue. And I would really call in a third perspective, like someone who can witness, maybe it's, you know, uh, friends that have known the relationship for a long time, uh, maybe it's a coach or whatever, like someone who can witness what's going on here. And someone that can hold, because that's something that we haven't even talked about and that I feel is that there is a big stress on relationships of trying to have to figure it all out between two people, which is a lot. Like yeah. there used to be villages and tribes who would held relationships, who would meet the needs of individuals. And now in the ways that we live now, this one person has to fulfill, fulfill all those needs um, of being my best friend, of being my sexy partner, of being my confidence, of being my cohabitating partner. And, you know, we used to, in tribal ways of living, we used to have a whole village for that. So, mm. and then when things are hard, there are two bodies, two nervous systems getting stressed together. It's really, really, really hard to manage all of that. Um, and then we haven't even mentioned, you know, if you have a child or a family on top of that. Right. So, I would really, if you are at a at a crossroad, at a decision point, I don't think there is one question that would let you know, like, okay, this is the way to go. I really think that is a process, a process also that is maybe not just an individual decision. You know, if it's a very abusive situation or unhealthy, absolutely leave, leave as soon as you can. Um, but if both partners are willing to agree like coming back to the commitment um ceremony can you agree on okay we're gonna take a month to figure out why it is that both of us feel we cannot continue what's actually going on and if the best way for us is to not continue it's to me it's so painful if those um you know we are together for years and years and years we build up so much and then in one evening everything is thrown away um, so I really encourage couples to take time and to gain more perspective from friends and witnesses and really take time to figure out what's going on. So well said, Marie. And and I want to I just want to say two things in response to that. First, on your comment about commitment, you know, deciding to stay together no matter what. I think a lot of people, particularly young people, have this superficial um, view of commitment. They think commitment is just being in a relationship. And if there's anything that's wrong, if there's any argument, that's their escape hatch, right? Like, like they, they don't look at commitment as almost like, I'm not necessarily saying marriage, but just as a mutual decision to stay together and to work through things together. They see commitment as temporary. And then if there's any obstacle, if there's any you know argument or any stressor, then then they leave. And the second thing I wanted to say was I think a lot of what American culture um, and and you know it might be different in Dutch culture, but uh, in America we have this this you know capitalist ideology of if something's broke 
don't fix it. Just buy something new. If your computer's, you know, not worth malfunctioning, just go to Best Buy, go to Apple and get a new computer. And with relationships, that's dangerous because you've invested so much time towards getting to know someone, towards building this foundation of shared experience that, you know, you, you shouldn't run into a problem and immediately look at breaking up. I'm actually, to be honest with you, Marie, I'm someone that, that you know, I, I usually lean in favor of staying together and working it out because at least see if you can work it out. And then if, if your you know, differences are irreconcilable, then you can break up. But, but at least give yourself the chance to try to fix it first. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And, and very much also on um, the idea of uh, we stay together and, until it doesn't feel good anymore. Like that's, I mean, it's, it's a choice, of course, but there's just so much to be found if we do stay together when it's not good anymore. And again, like not not up to a point where it's it's not healthy anymore, but in a fundamentally healthy relationship and individuals, it's worth so much to, you know, at least given a moment to figure it out. And sometimes we do need, like, for example, me, me and my husband, uh, when we were at a point of like really not being sure if we could continue or not, our elder, who is also our mentor and a relationship expert, he said, okay, um, you are in this question right now. You owe it to your relationship to give that process time. Um, you cannot make this decision right now. You owe it to your relationship to give that time. And we both said, yeah, you're right. So, okay, we're going to take this month um, and really do the best that we can. And in that month, we found our breakthrough. That's a, I mean, that, that's an amazing success story. And I think it's it's a testament to the power of patience and also, you know, keeping an open mind. You got to look at your relationship, you know, as someone a year into the future. You know, will, will future Marie, will future Ricky, will future Liz or be happy that I left this relationship or will they be happy that I tried to work it out? At the end of the day, you, you don't want to, you know, look back and have regrets. You don't want to look back and say, and I really wish, you know, you, you know, that old saying, the one that got away. Yeah. Yeah, you exactly. Yeah. You don't, you, you don't want to, you know, have the, the man of your dreams, the woman of your dreams end up with someone else because you were just too stubborn or too self-righteous to, you know, to try to yeah. work through it. Yeah, exactly. And I would add to that very like underneath the stubbornness and the self-righteousness too afraid. Like there is such a deep fear of intimacy in ourselves. And, and for me, if I remember that, like, okay, if I'm walking away now, like I'm free, I'm allowed to walk away, but I want to heal this fear of intimacy. I want to learn to be deeply, deeply intimate and trust that. And that, to me, has been the biggest motivation to stay in moments when it got hard. And it's it's no harder to be intimate than right now, since most of us do our communicating on screens and most of us don't make eye contact and most of us forgot what it's like to truly be all in, you know, in someone on a conversation. How many times do you talk to either maybe not your husband, but to friends or to loved ones and you just feel like they're not listening to you and feel like they're not present and and they're not, you know, there with you right now. So part of being intimate is is really, you know, being in that moment and and being present oriented and letting yourself just just exist with the other person. Yeah, exactly. 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 Beautiful. When you say that, I'm thinking back about when we talked about sexuality, like that's the core of what keeps sexuality alive over many, many, many years is that capacity being deeply present with the other person and having that you having that 
present moment unfold itself in front of you. I mean, you have people who are kissing their girlfriend and thinking about, you know, an assignment at work or they're having sex with, with someone and then immediately checking their phone after. And it's it's really it's 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 really, you know, discouraging about what it says about the human race when all of our relationships are secondary to whatever else is going on in the world or, or you know, in our lives. Totally, totally. And no one um, says at the end of their life, oh, I wish I, I had worked more. Like it's all about like oh I Maria I talked about this there was a a, an episode I did about death and I talked about how at the you know they they did this study in hospice care where they asked people their five most common regrets on their deathbed and they said a couple of them were you know I wish I didn't work so hard I wish I I let myself be happier I wish I said I love you I wish I said I'm sorry and I wish I you know spent more time with friends and with loved ones so you know I think that's that's important to acknowledge. Exactly, exactly. And this is, I mean, it's what you say, like there's a big, big, big topic in humanity of not being able to to be in deep, intimate contact and a big invitation to work through these wounds and these fears of intimacy and like found really, really stable connections and and partnerships and have that be an example for a younger generation of how we love together how we communicate together how we take care of each other um and of the planet on on that note i mean you could even you could make a case marie just going off of that that people today don't love as strong as intense as selflessly as the last generation everything and this is sort of like like a separate tangent altogether, but everything's conditional. It's, you know, I love you if this, I love you when this, but how many, it's so rare to find someone, and, and I'm really happy that you did, where you love them unconditionally, and it's not qualified, and it's not on your terms. Uh, because I really feel in 2020, those types of connections are very rare. Yeah, and it, it very much has to do if, with like feeling not not connected to a bigger whole anymore. Um, like the, like what I said before about, you know, we, we didn't live in tribes in the last generation maybe, but there is a tribal memory in us of like being connected to something bigger and having a deep sense of belonging and interconnectedness. And our world in these days is very much focused on individualism as the highest good. Like I'm an individual, um, I make my life happen. And that's like, it's just not true. Like we're so deeply interconnected. Mm. Uh, and in more Eastern cultures, like that's still still very much the framework. But in our Western culture, like that very much gets in the way also in relationships. Like, you know, you take care of you, I take care of me. We're both individuals. Yes, and we are also an interconnected unit once we say yes to partnership. And we're also interconnected with our earth. And if we would feel that more, we might take care of the earth in different ways, right? And and Absolutely. that's I think a big part of the of the big disconnect that met, that all of us are experiencing right now. I love that we're weaving in, you know, the capitalism, the economics. You're talking about individualism. There's some elements of po- politics and humanities. It's really this this conception of love isn't just about, you know two people in a, in a relationship sense, it's really larger. And like you said, it's about loving the world, loving the environment. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I think we need to be more open-minded in that sense. By the way, is that, was that a bird I heard or a car alarm? I, I couldn't tell. Probably a bird or a gecko. 
<laughs> oh, 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 I didn't know ge- geckos could whistle like that. It is, uh, <laughs> that's, um, wow. Well, Marie, I feel like, I feel like we could talk about this all day. It sounds like, you know, th- there's a lot, a lot of terrain to cover in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really love that we, we ended with talking about, uh, the importance of healthy relationship, like on a global scale. And, you know, only just one little note to that, like think about when your relationship is healthy and try thing how much creativity you have available, how much energy you have available for the rest of the world, for your day. And I feel like that's why this relationship work is so essential. So we are, we can be like the most creative, um, nourished people, versions of ourselves that we can be by being in a healthy relationship. I, I really believe that you put, you know, the, it's like that, that book, The Secret, <laughs> which, which I, I didn't actually read, but I, I definitely spark noted you put love and you put positivity into the world and you really get love and positivity back. Um, and I think, I think that you, you, you know, you really hit the nail on the head there. So this has been uh, a really amazing conversation. I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to connect with you, to hear more from you and learn more about the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So my website, marieannawinter.com. And also I'm on Instagram. I post regularly videos and all kinds of things. Um, I have a, a free download guide and video around working with conflicts and triggers to really take those moments and transform them into moments of growth and opportunity. So yeah, go to my website or Instagram and um, connect with me. And always, like I, I encourage everyone always to reach out with stories that shares, because sometimes there can be a lot of shame around what's going on our, in our relationships. And I really want to pop that bubble and say, whatever you are experiencing, someone else is also experiencing. So please reach out when you're struggling. Yeah, make sure to follow her on Instagram. I mean, uh, you're you have some really compelling content, and and the insights that you post on relationships are are just are are you know super interesting to read. So uh, so your Instagram handle is Marie Ann Winter. Anna, yeah. Marie Anna Winter. Yes. Um. Well, well, this is this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining me, Marie. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. There you have it, guys. My conversation with relationship and love coach Marie Winter. I uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I think we could have talked for so much longer, um, and there were a lot of great takeaways that we touched on uh, having to do with attachment styles and recognizing the inner child in everyone. You know, what, what someone is really saying beneath that criticism or contempt or stonewalling or defensiveness what you know what do they really need um, looking at you know looking at the mirroring of their relationship with their parents um, as a child or as a baby with their current relationship and as Marie said knowing whether to work on a relationship and recognizing what the issues are and having that willingness to you know invest the time into repairing it um, some some you know really important uh, keys for analyzing the you know being honest with yourself about whether or not your relationship can endure. So next week on Nervous Habits, we have a very different sort of episode revolving around comedy. I'll be joined by stand-up comedian and the host of Tacos con Toro on Burst We Feast, Jesus Trejo. We discussed issues including political candidates' speeches always have zingers, airline safety videos gotta have a punchline, why has comedy come to dominate American culture so much over the past few decades? 
What exactly do people find funny? And is what people find funny today the same as it was 100 years ago? What is it like being a stand-up comedian in 2020, given the competitiveness of the industry and the millions of Twitter comedians out there? And finally, whether a dude who hosts a celebrity taco YouTube series ever gets sick of eating tacos. So that's coming up next week on Nervous Habits, my conversation with uh, Jesus Torejo. And after that, um, I have another conversation that I'm excited to preview with you guys. And that is a conversation structured around addiction. We talk about why exactly it's so easy to get addicted to drugs, to food, to alcohol, to pretty much anything. And what happens in your brain when those addictive pathways are being formed. Specifically, my conversation with food addiction specialist, clinician, and medical doctor Vera Tarman revolves around why most people have an unhealthy relationship with sugar and with processed foods. We talk about why we crave fast food so much, what's happening in our brain that keeps us returning to McDonald's and Taco Bell and Wendy's again and again and again, and how to train your mind to crave fresh fruits and vegetables instead. It's actually not that difficult, you guys. Um, And overall, it was a great conversation I had with Vera. Uh, She actually ends up diagnosing me with several addictions that I didn't know I had. Um, So personally, I got a lot out of that conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy it very much too. So just wanted to preview both of those episodes coming down the pike. We have Jesus Torejo talking about comedy uh, next week. And then the following week, Dr. Vera Tarman doing a deep dive on addiction both coming up next on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, write to us at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com, as well as search on YouTube at Nervous Habits Podcast and hit that subscribe button. If you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast yet, would really appreciate if you took a few minutes to do that on Apple Podcast means means a lot um, you know, to me and to other listeners who are curious about whether or not to invest time into listening to my, to my ramblings here. And remember, if you're scrolling through someone's Instagram feed or swiping through their Tinder profile, everything you see is highly curated and no one is as flawless or immaculate as they appear to be online. Take care and stay nervous.